We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos. And today my guest is Laura Pacheco. Laura is one of my closest collaborators. We met about 18 years ago when she joined my team as a social work student. We connected over our passion to advocate for equity and justice for the moms we serve. Laura shares about the different parts of our identity that are bringing on stigma and how that might lead to several disparities. Enjoy. And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. I met Laura in a very, very small office that was mine for a long time in a rehabilitation center. And she was coming with one of my dear friends who is a social worker and who was going to be her supervisor. And Stephanie, my friend, was super excited to introduce me to Laura because Laura had said that she wanted to work with parents with intellectual disabilities. And of course, it had been a couple of years that I had started the program with Stephanie Uh, to support moms with an intellectual disability at the rehabilitation center. And so we were thrilled to have like a third person join in, especially a person who was as excited about this work, uh, who felt, you know, advocacy was necessary, who felt a very strong sense of social justice uh, to be had and to be worked towards. And so I am thrilled to introduce and welcome Laura Pacheco, uh, who was a stagiaire, an intern, who then became a social worker as part of the program, who then became a very, very good friend of mine and my my partner. I mean, we're partners, aren't we, Laura? We are partners in, we are partners in crime and research. Yes. We've done (laughs) this for a long time. We've known each other now for a long time. I think 15 years? Yeah, I literally calculated that this morning. Yeah, since 2007. Wow. Oh, Mm -hmm. so it's really 15 years. It's literally 15 years. Wow. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's been more years or it feels like it has been because we know each other so well. But in the same time, it feels like, what, 15 years? It has gone by so fast at the same time. Yeah, my internship felt like it was yesterday, but not like you're saying. And I remember that moment like it was yesterday. And I have to tell you, I was so excited, but so intimidated to meet you. You know, (sighs) Stephanie talked about your research and this program that you created based on your research. And then when I met you, you know, your your intelligence and, and your passion, uh, and and then you you gifted me. I don't know if you remember this, but you gifted me <laughs> with a stack of of articles. I must have asked for them, and I I brought them um, on vacation and um, 
haven't looked back since then. Yeah. And I think you were, I, I knew you were my kind of person when you actually took <laughs> the stack of articles to read during your vacation. Yes. I was like, yep. that's my girl. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I think we knew it then that uh, we were going to be working together and uh, that this was definitely, this was definitely the field. Yes, exactly. For both you and I. And um, like you said, we haven't looked uh, back ever since. Yes. If you want to tell us, because um, mm -hmm. that's the day we met, but mm -hmm. you had experiences before that made you quite aware of sort of disparities and the discrimination um, mm -hmm. against parents with disabilities. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what led you to the field in the first place? Yeah, so it was my first internship uh, for my bachelor's in social work. It was at a community organization and it was one of my first clients. So uh, my supervisor at the time assigned me to this young woman and she gave me very little information, but to say um, that she was a young woman, so I didn't really know her age, uh, that had an intellectual disability, who uh, was a permanent resident um, from her country of origin, and that I should explore her uh, pregnancy experience and also abortion. So that was striking, obviously, right away. And at the time, I did ask my supervisor, oh, is, is that a, a natural practice that you have, that you ask all of the users about, you know, their pregnancy experiences and suggest abortion? Um, she didn't have a lot to say after that. Um, but just to say that when I met this young woman, it was in the office, uh, she came in, she was quite quiet, and reserved. I was trying to build that rapport. And then I asked her about her pregnancy. And she lit up. She smiled. She looked at me and um, and talked about how she was happy to be pregnant, um, how her family was really happy uh, that she was pregnant. And she even said to me, and I remember these words, um, she said to me in French, in my culture, a woman is made um, to have children, to be a mother. So it was something that she really valued. So it, it was very striking that my supervisor had these biased impressions of this young woman who had never had a child before. It was her first child. Um, and then this young woman talking about how important um, being a mom was to her and to her community and to her family. She also gave me consent um, to speak to her social worker at to the disability organization. And the social worker said to me how concerned she was and how she felt as though this young woman would regard her child as a doll. I left that experience and, and the internship continued, but I left that particular experience just really being impacted by the discrimination and, and biased attitudes that are not only out there, but that are reinforced by people like social workers that are supposed to be able to, to support and provide resources and also provide some hope. Um, so that, you know, was really striking to me and, you know, the different messages that were sent to her from these social workers, but also uh, from her family and the impact, you know, that, that this had on her. Yeah. So that was my first parent in the field. And uh, I remember looking at 
trying to find um, some resources. And I, I think this was actually just before your program was created. And so, you know, at the time, didn't find anything for her, but she did, she did receive community resources and was able to, to have um, some success in the long run. I love it, but your story, there are very clear images, you know, like mm -hmm. when the social worker was saying like, the baby is going to be like a doll. I mean, that's pretty striking as a, as an opinion, you know, mm -hmm. especially when you think that this person has never been a mom before, which mm -hmm. means they've never seen her parent. So they don't even know if she's capable or not. Correct. But also the part of the story where you say, you know, in her culture, parenting is sort of like what you do. I mean, it's, you know, if you're a woman, you are a mom or you yes. are meant to be a mom. That's um, right. And how, you know, like her family could be accepting when sort of society or the structure, the system that we have in place wasn't seeing that at all. You talk also about sort of that strong sense of social justice. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is the moment you realized that you had this strong sense of social justice? Or was that something that was in you before you met this mom? Um, I, I definitely think it was kindled in that situation with that mom. Um, but I remember uh, as a bachelor student, engaging in some of the you know anti-oppressive uh, readings and reading a little bit about mothering uh, with a disability in general and the barriers that a lot of these these parents face so I, I think that's where it started and then certainly within my internship it's another instance where that that sense of injustice is really emphasized So this was, you know, in my, my master's internship, obviously with you, and it was a couple um, and the couple's family member had made a referral um, to your service and we got involved. Uh, and, and as a part of the process, we got obviously all the assessments and, and the paperwork. And in one assessment that was written by um, a social worker that went to court, It stated that this mother's ability to learn parenting skills is as possible as a paraplegic's ability to walk. It, it, I, I think to me that will be the one of the moments in my clinical career, I don't know about you, where it's just incredibly striking um, and, and obvious how, um, how there's bias and how that bias leads to interventions and outcomes. Especially in that case, I think, where we saw what putting in supports, um, having the resources made in terms of a difference. And when those resources were put in place, the couple was doing quite well with their kid, uh, mm -hmm. raising him and and being able to, to parent adequately. And so it's interesting that in one person's mind, it's just impossible right? Because a paraplegic will never walk unless you have an exoskeleton. And maybe that's the image. I mean, if we were to run with the image, right? If you have an exoskeleton of services and support, I guess a paraplegic can walk. So that image could be um, tweaked. Oh, I like that. I like that. That could have been the counter argument to yes. her. And sometimes that's what we need, an exoskeleton of services. Yeah, and I think you're also highlighting the power of supports and um, how if those supports 
first of all, if the practitioner sees that there's no hope um, in order to improve parenting capacity, then they probably won't even uh, offer supports. And we've seen that in, in some of our research where parents with intellectual disabilities are less often offered reunification supports. And then of course, there's the availability of supports. Are supports available? And if they are, are they, they adapted? Now we're talking a lot about sort of our clinical practice. What was the link to then come in into research and will then tie in into the three articles that you chose for today? Yeah, it's interesting because I think it was probably a set of moments that kind of culminated into <laughs> into one event. Um, certainly throughout my my internship and seeing all the research that you had done and, um, you know, the work that Maurice and, and David had done um, was really inspiring. And I did find myself thinking about ways that I wanted to contribute more, that I wanted to be able to be involved in research in order to make uh, more of an impact uh, related to social justice. That epiphany moment was when you had, um, well, Dr. David McConnell, David and Dr. Feldman, and you had presented in Montreal and talked about the research that had been done and what the impact that has had on the field and sort of looking at, okay, what do we do next um, together? And just, I think, hearing the three of you and hearing not only your commitment to the field, which to me was really important, but how um, the research was conducted and how it made an impact on, on or was meant to make an impact on, on people's everyday lives. That was something that inspired me. And, and I thought that's something that I, I want to be involved in. Yeah. I remember mm -hmm. that, uh, that conference and having those conversations, which were quite inspiring, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, dreaming about how can we further support these families? How can we create more justice and, and support families so that they are healthy and, and connected? So one way that you did that, obviously, mm -hmm. is you, you joined into the research with us and you conducted your, your own research as part of your PhD. Uh, do you want to talk to us a little bit about sort of that process, but in in connection to the article that you chose that came from your, your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually, I think, partly inspired by uh, my interaction with the, the first mother that I met and um, some of the critical reflections that I had that were still unanswered. And around the time that I was doing my, my PhD, was the IACID CERB position paper in 2008. And so one of the, the calls to action was around lower income countries and intersectionality and, and culture. So that's something that, that spoke to me. So my PhD was a narrative study with eight mothers um, that identified as having an intellectual disability and who identified from coming from an ethnocultural community. So they themselves felt a strong connection to their cultural communities. So I had a mom that was from Portugal. I had another one um, that was from Vietnam, but identified as Chinese. I had another mom um, who was African. And I had two moms um, that identified as indigenous and um, felt that they wanted to participate in the study and felt as though they were 
part of a cultural community based on their uh, indigenous identity. So the the purpose of um, of the paper or of the, the PhD was to explore um, their everyday experiences through their life stories, um, to identify some of the struggles or or oppression, and but also um, the resilience and and strategies of resistance. And what came out is that these moms did experience. A lot of loss. There were some really dark and deep depictions of violence, um, particularly within their relationships. You know, emotional violence, physical violence, and um, sexual violence as well. They they also talked about the ways in which their culture and family and society had these expectations of them as a mom that they felt that they couldn't live up to, and the impact that this had more on the the psycho-emotional level. Um, So these were some of the the oppression that they experienced and the the strategies of of resistance. They talked about standing up um, to people in their lives that denigrated them. Um, One mom um, in the middle of the hospital screamed at her cousin, used the R word um, and said, "This this is how I am and just leave me alone sort of reclaiming um, that word and and standing up and saying, you know what, this is this is my life and I'm not perfect sort of narrative. Um, and then also um, some of the women spoke up to their husbands, um, to their family members, and some of the women uh, decided to leave their husbands. And um, this was really in order to create a better life for their children. And the most, I think, significant piece of it was that their mothering identity was the most important thing to them. And that in itself was a counter narrative, you know, based on on society's ableist and, and negative discourses. Everything that you're talking about, it's it's not about the disability, really. You're you're talking about everything else. You're talking about violence. You're talking about discrimination and how they're fighting and making sure that they have their space um, mm-hmm. in the world and that it's respected and their dignity is respected and that they're offered the same human rights as anybody else. Absolutely. Their real fight um, to be able to be seen in a certain way, to be seen also for their contributions and their positive parts of themselves and to be to be valued and loved. Loved yeah. was, you know, another another big piece yeah. yeah in terms of like the research recently i spoke to uh to david mcconnell and uh we ended up talking about tim and wendy booth mm. what influence or is was there well i know there is an influence that's why i'm yes. asking the question so <laughs> yes can you please elaborate what that influence has been on you in terms of their work yeah that i would say probably has some of the most important influence on on my work they just had this amazing ability to really narrate the life experiences of of parents and really document the contextual factors and really you know elaborate on life experiences and that it's not about the intellectual disability it's about these 
you know, ridiculous living environments and the, the lack of resources and how that has a huge impact on, on everyday life. And, you know, the importance of seeing that context, not only within the research so we can address it, but also within practice, their work, um, their life story approach, um, the ways in which they were able to interview so many parents and really get at their authentic stories um, is, is it's, you know, it's seminal because of that. So that was your first, well, I don't know if it was the first article, but it certainly was one that was really important and key in your mm -hmm. career. You've had a few since, and one of them is part of sort of building systems capacity. Do you want to take us on that journey in terms of how that came about and what that is basically? So that piece, again, was part of a larger study, um, and the goal was to build systems capacity within Canada. So looking at it from Ontario, uh, Quebec, and uh, Alberta at the time. Um, and the larger study really looked at what are the support needs of parents with intellectual disabilities from the parent's perspective. And then there was um, another part of the study that looked at it from the worker's perspective. The article is based on semi-structured interviews with workers, so service workers in Canada, who were nominated by parents with intellectual disabilities. So it ended up being um, disability um, service workers, so social workers or social service workers, educators and psychoeducators. David and, and Llewellyn um, had done a study in, in 19, 1997 um, related to um, support needs. So there, you know, there were some, some similarities there. I think what was striking maybe about um, this study is that workers did identify um, discrimination that um, parents with intellectual disabilities face. Um, they identified the need for access um, to justice. Um, they didn't talk about um, the ways in which to, to gain that access and how to explore that, but they talked about that as being an, an important piece. And they also talked about um, the importance of workers. So whether it's child welfare workers, whether it's disability workers or mainstream workers, being able to embed what, what we then together named as the three R's. So the first R is reflective practice. So the participants talked about the importance of workers being able to um, be reflective in their practice, to identify their social positions, um, to identify the privilege they may have, and the biases that they could have and how this influences their work uh, with parents with intellectual disabilities. And then um, the other R was related to research informed. So these participants talked about the importance of using research, um, the importance also of having some sort of portal uh, for workers because workers, as we know, are busy and can't, you know, necessarily read a full article while they're, they're meeting families going to court. So they, they talked about the importance of research in line with a sort of portal, an accessible portal that they can, um, they can access. Um, and the last one was the importance of relationship building. 
So relationship building, um, they talked about, and, and, you know, something that I think resonates within us um, is that is incredibly important, particularly with these parents uh, who've experienced, you know, individual and collective trauma, who have often had negative experiences with social workers or, or helping professionals. So they identified that piece and building rapport as, as really essential. They did talk about the importance of building rapport across, but that roles are, are influenced by mandates and policies, and that does have an impact on the role. So that also, when we're building that rapport, that also has to be built in there, that there's also that transparency. So those were, I think, the the some of the most significant findings um, in that study, maybe that were were striking and contributed something that we expanded on a little bit more. And so the third article that you you want to talk about is uh, discourse analysis. So again, sort mm -hmm. of looking at stories, but this time using sort of um, a medium that is publicly accessible that we didn't know, because uh, mm -hmm. this is a research that we've done together called court reports that apparently are, you know, on websites and available to everybody. So do you want to talk to us about about that project? Absolutely. So for our larger study, we had, I think it was about 117 uh, court reports that we analyzed. So there's a, a descriptive study um, that um, looks at outcomes and different components of, of these parents' lives. And then this study um, was more focused on uh, the analysis or the discourse analysis of these court reports. So we chose 10 court reports, and again, it was in line with previous research um, that identified um, the number of reports based on uh, saturation. And um, we analyzed these 10 reports on three levels. So the first level was really based on the textual level. So here we were looking at the descriptions of uh, parents with intellectual disabilities within these court reports. What were the terms that were used um, to describe them? Um, and what were they based on? Then the, the next level of our analysis was to look more at what they call the discursive practices or the power relations. So whose voices are heard um, in these court reports? Um, and how is evidence presented? Who makes these decisions within the court reports and, and what are they based on? And then that final level was really looking at um, deeply embedded within these court reports, what were the larger discourses within society? And, and for us, um, we certainly saw the professionalization of uh, social work. Uh, we saw ableism. We saw the, the rhetoric of, you know, the best interest of the child as well. So those were, were the elements or the discourses um, that came out um, the most in, in our discourses. I think that in terms of some of the the most striking pieces were related to the juxtaposition between the ways in which and it was mothers with intellectual disabilities uh, were portrayed versus the caregivers so um, all of the children were placed out of care um, either with um, the father of the children uh, with a family member or um, a child welfare caregiver. The parents were described as, as deficient and unable, um, lacking insight, 
um, unfit, whereas these caregivers were described as resourceful uh, and resourceful in the way of being able to provide services and activities, but also financially resourceful, um, available and desirable. So it was really striking, you know, the ways in which caregivers and, and mothers with intellectual disabilities were portrayed in the court reports and how that influenced, of course, the outcomes. There was a, a, a lack of position, um, a lack of voice, um, or their voice was devalued uh, within the court reports. All of these moms had lawyers and most of them had contested um, the allegations and the recommendations by child welfare, um, but very little moms testified. Um, none of them had anybody testifying on their behalf. And there were two lawyers that had um, brought up counter arguments and brought up the parent's perspective and, and tried to show that, you know, the mother was engaged in, during the visits. So that that lack of space and, and voice was, I think, quite evident. But there was one mom who didn't attend court and she was um, really discredited for it. Um, basically, the judge said that it was a lack of interest that led her not to come to court. So um, devalued whether you're there or not there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, it was also some, you know, around the voicelessness mm -hmm. of these these parents as if, you know, they're there represented, yet they're absent and not absent because they want to be absent. I mean, I don't know. We haven't met them, so we don't exactly know. But mm -hmm. certainly, you know, from a clinical eye or a researcher eye, uh, reading those reports, it was sort of like, well, did you ask her? Did you tell her? Was there a problem in transportation that led her to not come? Is it because when she's, you know, invited to those kinds of meetings, she doesn't understand anyways, because nobody's adapting to her level of understanding? Is that why she's not coming? Because she's feeling like helpless and hopeless in those meetings. So there was a lot of questions that we had on a clinical basis yes. that offered alternatives to the opinions that was showcased in those reports. To me, that was the most eye-opening, even, even though we already knew that in clinical practice, but it was sort of like seeing it black on white. That was very powerful in terms of the silence was deafening. And I think yes. that that's, that was very striking. So those are like fantastic research. And obviously um, in the show notes, there's gonna be the references. So people, if they wanna go and check them out and read them, uh, right. they're gonna be welcome to do that. We're gonna switch to the last portion of, of this conversation and sort of say, now what? Like we, we know this, what are your opinions in terms of what we should do next? In terms of where do we go from here, I think that um, certainly increasing the diversity in terms of the research participants using intersectionality, so including participants from BIPOC communities, from LGBTQIS communities, from Indigenous communities. Um, and I know this is something that, that we've said as, as, as researchers too, is also having parents that were recruiting for us from our studies that are well embedded in the community. 
that maybe don't have um, social services involved and that they're doing well and they have maybe family and neighbors and, and the sort of, you know, system of, of support going there. I also wonder how we could increase community participation approaches with uh, parents with intellectual disabilities. So I know that they've, you know, they've done some of this work, certainly in Australia and in England um, and with TASP as well. Um, but how can we have more collaborative uh, research relationships with parents with intellectual disabilities um, that become co-researchers, but in a meaningful uh, way? Also looking at what are the positive contributions of parents with intellectual disabilities? And one of the things that you know we've talked about too, and that I'm really interested in is related to interdependence. So how do parents with intellectual disabilities also provide support? It could be in their interpersonal relationships, it could be with their parents, their children, their grandparents, but how can we also see them as positive support providers and not just care receivers? Because ultimately we're like, not just one thing and neither mm -hmm. are they right they're right. not just someone who has an intellectual disability right they are also a daughter they are also a sister they are also a community member and so all of those relationships they're not just like one directional you know some of them are bi-directional and sort of exploring that i think that that's um definitely something that's missing in terms of looking at the positives. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah, because then in that way, we're actually looking for their contributions. We're, we're looking at how they give and how they're appreciated to hopefully be able to challenge, you know, the, the normative discourse on just people with disabilities in general, right, as, as being dependent. So the other part also that you mentioned in terms of like your sample, and looking at sort of elsewhere, not just rehabilitation centers or like services or child welfare, I think we would also probably get a different view or a different perspective. And I offer you and everybody who's listening to actually listen to uh, Gwyneth Llewellyn talk with me because there was a good portion of the talk where we did mention about, you know, where did she find all of those parents who, we're not in services and it was very eye-opening in terms of we have a responsibility as researchers to maybe go and get our sample you know of participants somewhere else in the community directly you know one of the things and this is a conversation that we had about why aren't we doing more research with self-advocates and community organizations where parents with intellectual disabilities are at the heart of the center and you know, one of the things that you mentioned also resonated with me and something that we need to think about, it goes back to systemic barriers, right? So um, a lot of our folks are struggling just, you know, on the day to day because of their social position. So we have to keep tackling those structural pieces, those inequities, because we see not only does it have an impact on health, on on parenting, on on children, um, it, it has an impact on everyday life. The social justice component, I think, is an important piece as well. I have one last question for you. If you had an audience of child welfare workers, what is the one thing you would tell them? 
First, I would say child welfare work is really difficult. It is the most difficult social work job across countries. Um, there are multiple demands. Uh, we also live in a society where the system is less than, so it's neoliberal. We don't have a lot of resources. So I, I want to acknowledge that um, before I say what I'm going to say, because I, I know that I, I know that it is is quite difficult, and and certainly we we, we value the work that that's being done. Um, I would probably go back to some of the the findings related to reflective practice. Child welfare workers are, are, are mostly social workers, um, I believe in, in Canada anyways. And so we have a responsibility to social justice. It's one of our values um, and it's one of the, the core principles of, of the profession. So, you know, engaging in critical self-reflection on a continuous basis and it's, it's a long-term process. Um, so whether that's something that's done um, individually or it's done um, during supervision, it's important to be able to explore that and to identify that the families or parents with intellectual disabilities that they will often meet, that their struggles are often rooted in structural issues and structural barriers. I think that in reflecting upon that, and uh, you know, as practitioners, we had to do that as well, is to reflect upon your power, um, to reflect upon the fact that your biases and, and your perceptions have an influence on your assessment and your interventions and ultimately um, the outcomes. Building relationships with families at the same time, being transparent about what the limits of your relationships are and building collaborations with other workers so that not only can this family be supported, um, but that the needs are being met if, you know, it's beyond your, your child welfare role. Also use research. Um, so there are not only publications, but I'm thinking about, you know, the book um, that you did with Maurice on uh, comprehensive assessments and the CW360 um, booklet as well um, that breaks down research and that can be used within practice and, and forwarding your practice. And the last thing I would say is the importance of, of reaching out whether that's reaching out to your supervisor for clinical support, but also to talk about um, what's being triggered and, and the difficulties of the job and your team, you know, as well is important. So make sure to to reach out. Those are definitely like great, um, great advice. It was a wonderful conversation. I really thank you for taking the time to just chat with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. I really appreciate it. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.